Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Well, today, of course, is Palm Sunday, a Sunday where at least historically the church has reflected upon Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as he began the descent of humility, which would climax on that cross of Good Friday. And today, as we consider Psalm 118, we're going, we, are, we will consider Psalm 118 as a psalm that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus' Passion Week, in Jesus' Holy Week. So please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. 
You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, it is currently uh, March Madness, the highlight of the year for every basketball fan. Now, if you are a fan of college sports, maybe not just basketball, but football or some other sport, it is impossible to separate your love for your favorite school and their school song. Every time a touchdown is scored or a timeout is taken, the band strikes up the school song. Well, when we think about the nation of Israel, what was Israel's national song? It's an interesting question. We don't have necessarily a definitive answer. But one could make the argument that Israel's national song is found in the refrain or chorus that we find here in verse 1 and verse 29 of Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now you'll notice in verses 3 and 4 that this is a refrain or a chorus that wasn't just sung by one particular individual. Rather, it was a refrain or chorus that all Israel sang, that the house of Aaron sang, that all those who feared the Lord took upon their lips. Now, this refrain or chorus is not only found here in Psalm 118. It's found in Psalm 106, Psalm 107, Psalm 136. Furthermore, we don't know exactly who wrote Psalm 118. It may have been David. But we do know that David took these words upon his lips. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 20, David sings this song as the ark is returned to the tent or the tabernacle. Solomon sings these words when he dedicates the Solomonic temple. Furthermore, the exiles who returned to Jerusalem in the time of Ezra, they sing this chorus as well as they celebrate the rebuilding of God's holy house. The nation of Israel as a whole would sing these words on an annual basis every year at Passover as they celebrated God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt. In fact, Jesus and his disciples sang these words after their last supper on the eve of Jesus' death. Consequently then, uh, this refrain, this chorus, likely served as Israel's national song for over a thousand years, from the time of David to the time of Jesus. And so this morning, we are going to consider what this simple chorus means. God is good. This is arguably one of the most simple confessions that we as Christians make. God is good. This is one of the first things that you teach your children. God is good, but yet this 
is one of the most profound confessions that we can make. This is something that we as adults cling to every day of our lives. This confession is what makes God's sovereignty and God's power a delight and comfort to the people of God. God's steadfast love endures forever. Now this phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord, is is actually just one word in Hebrew. And this this Hebrew word is a a, a really important word. It's, 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 It's referring to God's chesed love. And this Hebrew word denotes the idea of love. But it also denotes this idea of loyalty and faithfulness, which is why the ESV properly renders it as God's steadfast love. It's not a transient love. It's not a flippant love. It's an enduring love, a loyal love, a faithful love. Well, this morning, we will consider how Psalm 118 is fulfilled in Jesus' Passion Week. We will consider how Psalm 118 is fulfilled in Jesus' Holy Week. And as we consider this, my hope and my prayer is that we would come away with a fuller, richer understanding of this seemingly simple chorus. That our God is a good God. That our God's steadfast love endures forever. So the first thing I'd like us to consider this morning is that the goodness and steadfast love of the Lord are fulfilled in Jesus riding on a donkey, or on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Now Psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 are quoted in Jesus' triumphal entry. In Matthew 21, which is one account of this event, in Matthew 21, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, mounted on a young donkey, and we learn that the crowd who is witnessing this event, they shout out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this word Hosanna, in, originally in Hebrew, was an invocation of the people of God for God to be their salvation and deliverance. And so this, this, this call of Hosanna is really a summary of verse 25. You'll see in verse 25, the psalmist is invoking God to save them. And so this, this call of Hosanna is a is an is allusion to Psalm 118, verse 25. And then we see the crowd going on and quoting verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you may recall last year as we considered the triumphal entry from, from Luke's gospel, we spent some time reflecting upon the significance of this animal that Jesus was riding upon. Jesus mounted a donkey, and rode into this holy city. Now, when a king in the ancient world mounted a donkey, usually it symbolized peace. Sometimes it symbolized weakness. Contrastly, when a king mounted a a mighty stallion or steed, this signified 
battle and war and power and might. Now this image of Jesus on a donkey wonderfully defines Jesus' first coming. We know that in Revelation, Jesus will mount that war steed as he comes in judgment. But in his first coming, Jesus mounted a donkey. This image of Jesus on a donkey also perfectly defines God's goodness and steadfast love. Jesus, in his first coming, came to this earth in humility and meekness to lay his life down in order that peace might be brought between God and man. This was the purpose of Jesus taking on human flesh. Now we need to recognize the paradox of this image. Jesus on a donkey, the Christ on a donkey, the Son of God on a donkey, the King like unto David on a donkey? The disciples, no doubt, would have struggled with this image, with this paradox. The disciples were expecting Jesus to mount the mighty war steed. The disciples were expecting Jesus to wield the physical sword and to defeat the Romans. The disciples were expecting Jesus to renew that theocracy of old and finally, finally renew the kingdom of Israel to be a mighty, mighty nation. But what does Jesus do? He dies in the hand of the Romans of his own, and of his own people. These disciples expected Jesus to bring political freedom and earthly prosperity. And what does Jesus do? He brings suffering and hardship. They struggled with this paradox. And if we're honest with ourselves, we too can struggle with the paradox of God's steadfast love and goodness. God's steadfast love and goodness is found in part in, a, in the visible church of which today is called Protestantism with its many denominations, factions, divisions, and ever-abounding interpretations of the Word of God? How can this be? God's steadfast love and goodness is delivered or are delivered through the preaching and reading of an ancient text and the administration of ordinary bread wine, and water? How can this be? God's goodness and steadfast love is personally found in our lives, in our sufferings, trials, and tribulations? How can this be? Well, our God is a God who glories in paradox. Our God is a God who loves to use the weak and ordinary things of this world to deliver and reveal his saving power and grace. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And he even goes on to say a few verses later that he came preaching 
not in eloquent words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of power and in the Spirit. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 12 that in his time of deep affliction, God told him, my power is made perfect in weakness. And so people of God, as we take upon our lips this chorus of Psalm 118, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures. We are giving thanks that Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. We are giving thanks for the paradoxes that exist within the Christian faith that serve to glorify and magnify our holy God. Well, second, we see in this psalm that the goodness and steadfast love of the Lord are fulfilled in Jesus as our cornerstone. In Jesus as our cornerstone. Now, on Monday through Wednesday of Jesus' Passion or Holy Week, we learn in the Synoptic Gospels that Jesus spent this time, or at least much of this time, in the temple. This old covenant temple that was being reconstructed at that time or, or renovated at that time by Herod. And Jesus spent his time in this temple overturning tables interacting with the religious leaders and teaching the crowds. And during this time, Jesus quoted Psalm 118, verse 22, and applied the metaphor that the psalmist uses in this verse to himself. So Jesus quotes verse 22 of this psalm. He, he says, He is that stone rejected by builders, but has now become the cornerstone. Now, this metaphor that the psalmist uses in verse 22 that Jesus then applies to himself perfectly summarizes Good Friday and Easter. On Good Friday, the builders, that is to say, the Jewish religious leaders reject the stone of Christ. However, on Easter morning, God takes this rejected stone and makes this rejected stone the cornerstone of a new creation temple that he is building. Now this metaphor, this metaphor that the psalmist uses in Psalm 118, this metaphor that, again, Jesus quotes and applies to himself, is a metaphor that was very influential upon the apostles. For instance, the apostle Paul, who was not there when Jesus first quoted and applied this metaphor to himself. He picks up this imagery in Ephesians chapter 2, and he reiterates again how Christ is the cornerstone of this temple. But he goes on and says that the New Testament prophets and apostles make up the rest of this foundation. Peter also was very much influenced by this metaphor. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, Peter says, as you come to the living stone, which is a reference to Christ, as you come to this living stone who in the sight of God is chosen and precious yet was rejected, you yourself are also living stones, or you could say living bricks, being built up into a spiritual house. So Peter expands upon this metaphor 
and says that we as ordinary Christians are living bricks that are placed on top of this foundation of Christ and the apostles. Consequently then, God's steadfast love, God's goodness is further defined in this metaphor. This new creation temple of Christ, the apostles, and the living bricks of the post-apostolic church. One of the main ways then in which we experience the steadfast love of God, we experience God's goodness is as we enjoy union and communion with Christ who is our cornerstone. As we hear the word of Christ, as it's mediated through the apostles in the inscripturated word of God, as we glean from the wisdom of the creeds and confessions of the church, which are the result of the living bricks who've gone before us, and as we enjoy fellowship and communion with the living bricks in our current local congregations. This is how we, in a very practical way, enjoy the goodness and steadfast love of our God. Now, why is this important? I think we all, deep down, have a desire to belong. We have a desire to belong to something that's beyond ourselves, something that's transcendent. We long to be anchored. We long to be rooted in the midst of a very transient and unstable world and society. And many people look to the church to satisfy this, this desire to belong, and this is a, a good place to look. And so when you think about who we are, Gig Harbor URC, we are a small church. We meet in what is essentially an oversized classroom. We have a very short history. However, when one becomes a member of Gig Harbor URC, one is becoming a part of a historic, rooted, and anchored institution, an institution that has roots in not only the Protestant Reformation, but has roots even in the medieval church, the ancient church, but most importantly, in the foundation of Christ and the apostles. And so when you look at our creeds, when you look at our confessions, when you look at our church order, which is how we govern ourselves as a church, when you look at how we, our method of catechizing, we are operating the way the church is operating for, has operated for hundreds, even thousands of years. And so when we pray that the Lord would establish his church, in Gig Harbor, what we're praying is that the Lord would establish an historic and rooted institution as a beacon of God's steadfast love and goodness in the midst of a transient community. And so people of God, as we take upon our lips the words of this chorus and say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. What we're doing is we're giving thanks that Jesus is our cornerstone. We're giving thanks that we can be called a living brick in the midst of this beautiful edifice of the new creation temple. 
Well, third, we see in Psalm 118 that the goodness and steadfast love of the Lord are fulfilled in Jesus singing this psalm. In Jesus singing this psalm. Now, if you look at verses 5 through 18 of Psalm 118, you'll notice that the psalmist is praising God for a past deliverance. And the Jews interpreted this reference to a past deliverance as a reference to the Exodus, which is one of the reasons why this psalm was sung every year at Passover. In fact, this psalm is part of a collection of psalms. This collection or grouping of psalms include Psalms 113 to 118. These psalms are referred to as the Egyptian Halal Psalms, meaning uh, the people of God are, are praising God for this past deliverance out of Egypt. Now in Matthew and Mark, when we read about Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday, the eve of his death, we read that after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he and his disciples sing a hymn before they go to the Mount of Olives. Now it was tradition among Jews that before the Passover meal, they would sing Psalms 113 to 114, and then after the meal, they would sing Psalms 115 to 118. And so Jesus and his disciples almost certainly would have been singing Psalm 118 as they made their way to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus would have sung this chorus, Israel's national song, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus would have, would have sung this psalm with you in mind. Think about that. He's singing this psalm on the eve of his death. I'm sure his mind very much was caught up with what was about to transpire in the coming hours. And so the only reason why we can sing this psalm, recite this psalm, read this psalm, and be assured, be comforted, is because Jesus sang this psalm with us in mind. So let's think for a few moments how Jesus would, would, have, would have been singing this psalm on the eve of his death. So for instance, in verses 10 through 13, you'll notice that the psalmist is speaking about how he is surrounded by his enemies. His enemies are surrounding him like swarming bees. I would imagine that when Jesus was singing these words, he was thinking about how in a matter of hours, Judas would betray him with a kiss. Peter would deny him. Pilate would condemn him. And the religious leaders would crucify him. In verse 27, the psalmist speaks about this festal sacrifice. I would imagine that as Jesus was singing about this festal sacrifice, he could only think about how the very next day he would become this festal sacrifice bound upon the horns of the altar. In that same verse, we read the psalmist speaking about how our God makes his light to shine upon his people. I am sure that Jesus, as he was singing these words, 
was thinking that the only reason why his disciples who are singing these words with him can speak about, about their father's heavenly countenance shining upon them is because he, in the darkness of Good Friday, will experience his father turning his face away from him. Yet, Jesus could also sing confidently in verse 18 that no matter how dark the next day will get, God will not abandon his soul to Sheol. God will not give him over to death, but will conquer death and the grave and the, and the glories of his resurrection. And so, people of God, as we sing this chorus, as we recite this national song of Israel, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures. We are giving thanks that Jesus sang this psalm on the eve of his death with you in mind.